Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? So we absolutely talked about this. I absolutely remember, but here's the point we were making. What Isaiah is saying to the Israelites is, God has given you everything, but you're going everywhere else for your, it's, it's the Hosea picture again, that I've given you everything I can, but you're going outside of this for it. That's in Jeremiah, but I, but I mentioned that when we were talking about this, so thank you, Meredith. <laughs> Maybe you were the only one here. Um, okay, now you dwellers in Jerusalem and the people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. So in some ways he's saying it's not, not even that the, the judgment of God isn't necessarily even requiring a really active participation from him. It's just removing the protection. All he has to do is remove the wall that he's been protecting Israel with all this time and they will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland neither pruned nor cultivated and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. Again, we talked about Isaiah is fond of explaining his parables, which is nice of him, so we don't have to question what he's talking about. So he tells us, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty is declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A 10-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so that we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view so we may know it. In other words, we'll, we'll believe it when we see it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own, in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay, and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty, and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. 
Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the street. Yet for all this his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the end of the earth. Here they come, swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves seem like flint. Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of a lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, there's only darkness and distress. Even the sun will be darkened by clouds. So this is kind of wrapping up the prophecy specifically against Israel. Just that this, is, this is how bad it's going to be, and this is why. Because they're not just kind of negligent, but now good is evil and evil is good. They've turned everything upside down. Second Kings 16, 19 through 20 says, As for the other events of the reign of Ahaz and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Ahaz rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David, and Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him as king. And then we're up to where I thought we were. So now we're all together. Second Chronicles 28, 26 through 27 repeats what we just read, essentially. The other events of his reign and all his ways from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Ahaz rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of Jerusalem, but he was not placed in the tombs of the kings of Israel, and Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him as king. Cool. Everybody, everybody feel on the same page now? So what happens when we start in Isaiah 13 is that Isaiah has been spending a fair amount of time prophesying against Israel. And now he's going to turn his attention to all the other nations. <laughs> and he did, what's, there's a lot that's very interesting about these first couple chapters. And one of the things that's most interesting is what, what starts to happen in Isaiah. If you, if you read um, commentaries or, or critiques from skeptics of Isaiah... What you'll find is they say that Isaiah was written by three or four different people over the course of centuries. That parts of it were written in, like, in the time we're studying now, um, which is in this area here in 720, 710, up through 685. But that part of it was written in 400, part of it was written in 500. And the reason, the only reason, there's no, there's no manuscript reason. There's no sort of historical archaeological reason for assuming that this is broken up this way. The only reason they make this assumption is because there are things in chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 that Isaiah says that if he's actually saying them at this time, they have to actually be prophecy because they're very specific. And they talk about things that don't happen for another couple hundred years. And they're histor historically verifiable. So it's interesting because the, the skeptics, the critics, by insisting this was written over, over several hundred years, are actually affirming that we're not crazy to think that Isaiah's prophecies are that specific. They're acknowledging they're that specific. They're so specific that they're saying the only way this can be true is if this part was written after this had already happened, which is kind of cool, actually, <laughs> if you think about it. Um, so you'll see some of that. He talks about the Babylonians being the, the premier empire. And that hasn't happened yet. It's still the Assyrians. He not only that, he talks about the Medes conquering the Babylonians. The Medes are nobody at this point. They're not even on the radar. It would, it would be like, I don't know, making a prediction that the, you know, 
the isotopes are going to become a major league baseball team and they're going to win the World Series you know, in 10 years. It's just not even on the radar. So those are the kind of things you'll see in 1340. That's one thing that makes it interesting. Another thing that makes these chapters we're going to look at interesting is this is where a lot of people draw a lot of their end times theology from. That the second coming of Jesus is drawn from a lot of this passage. And I would say that's a theology you have to hold slightly loosely. I would say, we, again, it's a little hard. When we start talking about what's predictive for the future, I tend to suspect we're as bad at it as they were when they were predicting the first coming of the Messiah. Having said that, it's not without some reason to think that. And as we go through it, I'll show you why it's reasonable to think that there are some things here that refer to the, the second coming of Jesus. Some things that make it at least contextually with the rest of scripture kind of fit a flow. And um, so I will share some of that. What we do know is when he talks about Babylon, as he does in chapter 13, he is definitely talking about Babylon. He's very also possibly talking about other things, but he's also talking about Babylon. Just like we've seen with a lot of the prophets, there's dual meanings. And when he talks about the king of Babylon, he's talking about the king of Babylon. But he might also be talking about the metaphorical king of Babylon, which we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. All right. So those are some things that make we're about to go interesting. Um, but again, where we are, as we read now, your mindset changes. He's no longer talking about judgment coming to Israel. He's talking about judgment coming to other nations. And in a lot of ways, it's on behalf of Israel. So it's one of those things where he's using other nations to judge Israel. And then he's going to judge those other nations uh, because they came against Israel. And if you think that is a little bit unfair, it doesn't make sense. When we get to Habakkuk, you will feel a kindred spirit. Because right? that's what he thinks, at least initially. Okay. A prophecy against Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. So again, this is uh, about 705. We're, we're right in this time period, somewhere in the Hezekiah area. So we're around that time. And he's going to make these prophesi- prophecies about Babylon. But Judah doesn't fall to Babylon for another 100 years, not till 605. So a lot of what he's about to tell us about Babylon's ascendancy um, and their pride and the reason for their judgment isn't going to happen yet. And they don't kind of rise to ascendancy for 100 years. Their judgment's not for another couple hundred years. So, again, a lot of what he's about to tell us about are things that are 200 years away from the time he's speaking. So, here we go. While they are... Oh, that's me. (laughs) Sorry. While they are significant already, they are nowhere near the powerhouse they will become. That's not Isaiah. That was my words. All right. Let me skip over that since I basically said it. Yeah, that was worse. Exactly. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Shout to them. Beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded those I prepared for battle. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. So he's told us right off the bat. He's not talking about people coming to judge Israel. Now he's talking about Babylon. This prophet against Babylon. So God's army, whatever that means, is coming for Babylon. Now when? Not yet, but in the future. Listen, a noise in the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. He's describing a situation where where Babylon is going to be just shocked at the ferocity with which they are conquered. Babylon, when they are the, the rulers of the world, they are the rulers of the world. 
we, we have historically, we have this series of sort of national empires. You could even start with Israel if you wanted to. And they did it not, not as much by force, but more by trade. They kind of took over the whole world by trade and prosperity. Well, now you have Assyria, which comes in, and they become a worldwide power, basically taking over a vast part of the land. Then Babylon comes in and exceeds what Assyria did, and then Babylon rides on top of the world for a, for a while. They are, they're, just, they're so strong, so powerful, that we have that whole story of Nebuchadnezzar, which we'll get to, where Nebuchadnezzar begins to think of himself as God, and God has to turn him into an animal for a few weeks to figure out how that works. And So this is where they are. They look, they look unbeatable. They look as if their empire will last forever. And then King Cyrus of the Medo-Persians comes in, and basically overnight, he just wipes out Babylon. And that's what he's describing here. They will be aghast. They will say, what in the world? How did this happen? How did we go from where we were to where we are? And although historically there, there may be signs, you know, there was a pretty high level of depravity and corruption and things going on, so they probably were weakened internally. There was a lot of pride and arrogance. They probably weren't really worried about anybody anymore, so they weren't prepared. But from their perspective, for all the Babylonians, it's just like, wow, this just was just overnight. And that's what's being described. See, the day of the Lord is coming. One of the reasons that people think that in here is an indication about, about the second coming of Christ is because for, well, I don't know if this is a why, but this is an indication that it's not just the uh, Christians who sometimes see this as referring to the second coming of Christ. It becomes pretty clear that the rabbis saw this as messianic. Now, again, they weren't thinking of two comings, so they just had, they, they used to have arguments about whether Jesus was coming as the suffering servant that Isaiah speaks about, or whether Jesus is coming as the conquering warrior that, that Isaiah speaks about. And we have the benefit of saying, oh, he could be coming as both. <laughs> Came as the suffering servant first to, to buy our redemption, now he comes as the conquering hero to uh, kind of finish the job. And uh, so, but one of the things the rabbis understood was that phrase, day of the Lord, to refer to that kind of thing, to the judgment of God to come. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and the constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sins. Even notice how the, the, the context, the vocabulary has suddenly gotten really big. Now he's punishing the whole world. And there's going to be things like the lights blotted out in the sky, which we see in other uh, apocalyptic prophecies to come. So he's talking about Babylon, but it already begins to look like he's not just talking about Babylon. When you further add to this the fact that throughout the rest of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, Babylon becomes a stand-in for all the sinful world. Babylon becomes, it just like all the kings of Israel were always compared to Jeroboam. They were like, they were just like Jeroboam. They were a Jeroboam. Well, Babylon becomes that. So that whenever, uh, even Jesus, when he talks about the, the world system and how sinful the world is, he uses the term Babylon. He says it's all Babylon, which is interesting because at the time Jesus is walking, there is no Babylon. But he's just referring to this idea of Babylon being sort of a picture or a type of the world apart from God, of the sinfulness of the world. And so it makes sense that in this section where we're talking about the literal judgment of Babylon, and it is important we don't let go of the fact that he is talking about the literal judgment of Babylon, but it makes sense that it might also be a picture of the judgment of all sin, of the desolation and judgment of God to come in his second coming. Uh, in fact, it's an interesting thing. The, there's only one city that's mentioned more frequently in Scripture than Babylon. Does anyone want to guess what it is? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
And this is interesting because Jerusalem not only makes sense that it would be mentioned a lot as literal Jerusalem, but Jerusalem itself becomes a metaphor for heaven. So it's like you have these two metaphors. You've got Jerusalem, which is both literal and metaphorical of God's city of heaven. And then you've got Babylon, which is metaphorical of the world's kingdom. So you've got God's kingdom and the world's kingdom. And scripture talks about both of them metaphorically as Jerusalem and Babylon throughout the rest of scripture. Babylon is mentioned, in case you care, 287 times throughout scripture. I did not count them. I am trusting the commentary I read. As far as when they're going to, they're going to ascend about 100 years from now, from Isaiah, 605. They exist. They're significant. It's not like completely like who's Babylon. But to think of them as being the, the preeminent he's about to talk about, most people say, well, clearly, that would be Assyria. Why is he talking so much about Babylon? <laughs> right? Because he knows 100 years from now, it will be Babylon. And then their, their judgment is going to be about 100 years after that. Yeah, so about... You got it. Yep. Yep. What's that? It's like talking about Canada as a world power. Yeah, it would be like that. Yeah, similar idea. People would be like, well, I know Canada exists, but that seems a little bit, uh, a little bit of a leap. <laughs> and to my Canadian podcast listeners, we all know you're great. Okay. I don't think I have any Canadian podcast listeners. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make people scarcer than pure gold more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty. In the day of his burning anger, like a hunted gazelle, like a sheep without a shepherd, they will all return to their own people. They will flee to their native land. Whoever's captured will be thrust through and all who are caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses will be looted and their wives violated. See, I will stir up against them the Medes. This is the best specificity that drives the critics wild. They're like, there's no way that in 720 that Isaiah would not only be prophesying the judgment of Babylon, but that he would be choosing the Medes to do this because they, they are nobody. But isn't that what prophets do? Of like course. Prophesize? Of course it is. But if you don't believe in prophecy, you have to explain this some other way. And the way they explain it is to say, Isaiah is not one author, but four and that he wrote, and that it's just put together by somebody hundreds of years later. Where are the Medes from? Uh, it's the Medan Persia area. Uh, we'll, ha- we'll look at the map when we get there, when we see it. Uh, yeah, well, Babylon is more in the Iran area, but so where would it be? What would be contemporary today? Because Iranians usually refer to themselves as Persians. It's true. Turkey. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think more. I think Turkey might be about right, but I I, I don't know for sure. We'll have to look and see. Um, anyway, so this is kind of, this is where it drives on us. By the way, they they if you if you read up on these, they actually go through and tell you exactly where Isaiah kind of splits up between the various centuries, and they actually split a verse in the middle, and I mean a sentence in the middle. I don't even just mean a verse. I mean, they actually say, well, this half of the sentence is clearly Isaiah in 705, and this half of the sentence is clearly whoever Isaiah was in 505 because of the way it talks. And you begin to see, that's a stretch. Now, they're just saying somebody correlated and put it together, but still, you know, that's a stretch to say that that's the most natural understanding. The truth is, Occam's razor, the simplest answer to why Isaiah is what Isaiah is, is that it is one author speaking prophetically. 
That's actually the simplest answer. It's just a hard one to swallow. Aren't the Dead Sea Scrolls also before yeah. 505? So this is interesting. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and we'll talk about this when we, between the Old and New Testament, we do a little bit of talking about some of these kinds of things. In the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, when they were found um, mid-1900s, they, there were critics all over the world who said, finally, we will have the proof we need to show these crazy Bible-believing people that there's no way to read this literally. They, they predicted three things. They predicted that we were going to find so many errors. In other words, what the Dead Sea Scrolls were, they were copies of Isaiah mostly, but also other, other texts of Scripture. But they were mostly copies of Isaiah. But they were uh, centuries earlier than anything we'd ever found before. So they said, now we're going to see how much corruption there's been. There will be so many errors. Second thing they predicted was it will now be clear that Isaiah is several different people over several different times. And the third thing they predicted is, yes, we will find because these are old enough documents that, in fact, we won't even see parts of Isaiah. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls went and they were examined by non-biased researchers and they went through all this. And suddenly, after the results came out, the critics stopped talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. (laughs) Because what the Dead Sea Scrolls revealed was three things. One, that the accuracy over the 200-year gap is incredible. There are some textual changes, but nothing which affects the meaning of Isaiah at all. And really tiny things, small things. So they, they do show, okay, sure, there was a mistake or two that was made over the 200-year gap or whatever, but nothing significant and not very much. The percent is really small, much smaller than any other manuscript you would expect to see the differences. Second thing they discovered is all of Isaiah was there, some of it much earlier than it should have been, according to them. It was all there. In fact. Of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they find that 90, like some, I don't remember, uh, but somewhere to 80, 90% of it is intact, which to find one manuscript which has all of something like that is actually really unusual for ancient manuscripts. So again, they found that, well, I guess it can't really be as, as spread apart as we thought. And then the, what was the third thing I said they predicted? Oh, just that it would be different people, so it's really the same thing. Yeah, so they don't talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls anymore. Critics don't really, you know, talk about them because, in fact, they ended up proving what we thought and not what they thought. Okay, back to our stories. See, I will stir up against them the Medes, who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down their bows, bow and arrow, sorry. Their bows will strike down the young man. Bows striking down young men is odd. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians, will be overthrown like, by God like Sodom and Gomorrah, meaning thoroughly and overnight. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. There no nomads will pitch their tents. There no shepherds will rest their flocks. But desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. There owls will dwell. And there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will inhabit her strongholds, jackals, her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand, and her days will not be prolonged. So you look at a map, they'll tell you Iran is essentially Babylon, but the heart of Babylon is in a dead area where there is literally nobody. Um, So this has been true today, to this day. So it used to be like a lot, like... Well, when it was an empire, it was much larger, much larger, right? I mean, it was huge. huge. Well, they were just prosperous, so they could irrigate. Babylon, the Babylonians were very, um, they are responsible for some advances that we've seen. I don't know if you've heard of one of the ancient wonders of the world. It's called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. They did some pretty amazing agricultural things, and so they did a lot of irrigation. They may have been 
Well, they, they definitely weren't the first, but they may have been the first mass scale successful irrigation. Um, and there's just not, that isn't happening anymore. Not, not, not there. Her time is in hand. Her days will not be prolonged. Isaiah 14. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. So now he's prophesying the return of the exiles from Babylon before anyone's even been captured and put into exile by Babylon. Israel, the northern kingdoms, been, been at this point probably, it's, it's a little difficult to know exactly, but probably at this point has been captured by Assyria and they're in exile, but he's talking about people returning from exile to Babylon, something that isn't even on the radar. But it is going to be what's going to happen to Judah. That is what's going to happen. They're going to come back and they're going to, and, and all of the exiles that return are going to return to Jerusalem, even the ones that were taken from the northern kingdom. They don't go back to the north. They go back to Jerusalem when they come back home because that makes the most sense. It's where they want to settle when they come back. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. And Israel will take possession of the nations and make them male and female servants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. This is where it begins to think, well, that, that didn't quite happen. So again, a lot of people think this is talking about further down the line. On the day the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil and from the harsh labor forced upon you, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, how the oppressor has come into an end, how his fury has ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down people with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. And all the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. Even the junipers and the cedars of Lebanon gloat over you and say, now that you've been laid low, no one comes to cut us down. The realm of the dead below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you, all those who are leaders in the world. It makes them rise from their thrones, all those who are kings over the nations. They will all respond. They will say to you, you have become weak as we are. You have become like us. Now, this is where, yes, could he be talking literally about the king of Babylon? Yes, he could be speaking about this imagery of the king who thought he was the most powerful person in the world, basically God of the universe, and then one day he, he dies, and he meets all these other kings that he conquered, and they look at him and say, you're just like us. Many people also read this to be referring to Satan himself. And again, as we go forward, there's some reason for that. It's not completely uh, out of the question. And again, here's what I would say as we go forward. What we can hold with certainty is that this is a prophecy about the king of Babylon. What we can hold a little more loosely is that this is also a prophecy about Satan himself and about the end of the world and the end of the days and when the Lord comes back. And if that's the case, this is a really good reminder to us about something that we get wrong about Satan a lot internally. Even if we don't say it out loud, we kind of think this because Hollywood has done a really good job of this for us. And that's that Satan is not God's equal. Never has been, never will be. It's not an equal opposing force. He is just like men as far as God's concerned. He is just, he's nothing. And so to think of the idea of Satan actually being, as Revelation says, that hell is being prepared primarily for Satan. I'm not someone who does not believe in hell. I do believe in hell. I also believe that there are people who will go to hell. But Satan is who we're told in Revelation is who hell is really designed for. Not to rule not to lead. This is not his dominion. This is his prison. This is his punishment. And that's what this might be saying. That you're going to get to, to hell and you're not going to lead over hell. <laughs> you're going to be just like everybody else. You don't think it Powerless. could be like somewhat metaphorical and just like they'll fall and then like all 
as far as the king of Babylon. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I started with. We know for sure this is a prophecy about the king of Babylon. Whether it's also a prophecy about bigger things. But it seemed like it made not. it like really kind of specific. But I'm saying it could be both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave, along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. Morning star. It's the word Lucifer. This is where we get the idea of Lucifer, Satan, being brought low by God. Now, this might be a reach, this might be a stretch, except that Ezekiel refers to the morning star and seems very clearly to be referring not to a human entity, but to a fallen angel. And he uses the same term, Lucifer. So this is one of the reasons people connect these two passages and say this is not only about the king of Babylon, but this is about Satan himself. Again, I think you hold that loosely. I think it's possible. I'm sharing it with you because it's a very, very, very traditional view. Okay? I mean, that's the view you'll get if you crack open a commentary these days, nine out of ten times, that this passage is about Satan himself falling from heaven, that this is about his fall. This is about him being laid low. And the term morning star is, in fact, the term Lucifer. It is possible that, that Satan is not Lucifer. It's possible that Lucifer just means morning star, and it's a reference to Babylon. It's a reference to the king of Babylon. But given what happens in Ezekiel, it, it, that seems a little bit small. Seems a little bit unclear. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mounts of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Again, what we know is this applies to both Satan and king of Babylon. Whether Isaiah means it to or not, certainly applies to both of them. This was the same sin and arrogance they both committed, was to be God's equal. We're not that about Satan. Ezekiel. And Daniel. Possibly Daniel. Although since Daniel is during the time of, of Babylon, it's a little unclear. Okay. And Revelation. I yes. Time to look it up. So the words for O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, verse 5, O Come, O Bright Morning Star. Is there another reference in the Bible where the morning star is a bird morning star? Yep. Yep. Right. Jesus is also called the morning star. Yeah. And we'll talk about why that is when we get there. It's probably intentional at the time that it's used for Jesus to show that Satan is a... Is a uh, a, a pretender. He's a poser. But Jesus is the real morning star. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that would be weird if O Come, O Come, Emmanuel was about Lucifer, huh? <laughs> I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realms of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made the kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? All the kings of the nations lie in state, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. You are covered with the slain, with those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the stones of the pit. Like a corpse trampled underfoot, you will not join them in burial, for you have destroyed your land and killed your people. Let the offspring of the wicked never be mentioned again. Prepare a place to slaughter his children for the sins of their ancestors. They are not to rise to inherit the land and cover the earth with their cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord Almighty. I will wipe out Babylon's name and survivors, her offspring and descendants, declares the Lord. I will turn her into a place for owls and into a swampland. I will sweep her with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord Almighty. Um, 
probably the, the, the strongest connection between Babylon and the idea that this all has to do with the end time prophecies is Revelation itself. And so the Apostle John is, is either creating a metaphor about Babylon towards the end times or drawing upon what he sees as an already existing metaphor. Um, and there's reason to think he wasn't alone in that. So it may have been something other people saw. So that's where we are. And just to make sure that we're not lending confusion here, again, my position is what we do know is that this is all about the king of Babylon. What is also possible is it has a dual fulfillment in the, the day the Lord returns again. Okay. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed, so it will happen, I will crush the Assyrian in my land. So he just, Isaiah goes right from prophesying against Babylon, prophesying against Assyria. Chronologically, that's backwards. <laughs> but when you're a prophet, maybe you work from the farthest out back. I don't know how this works. Um, or remember, these are collected writings of Isaiah, and the chronology of them is a little unclear. So maybe he prophesied against Assyria first, and then prophesied against Babylon. Not a hundred years later, but maybe a few years later. But now he's going to talk about Assyria. He doesn't spend a lot of time on them, and I think that's because he's already prophesied against Assyria. <laughs> but it's, it's, so this may just be where he's like, oh yeah, we talked about the Babylonians. Let me remind you, the Assyrians will also be judged for, for what they've done. Um, on my mountains, I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord Almighty is purposed and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out and who can turn it back? It's kind of like by talking about Babylon and then Assyria, if he is actually doing this at the same moment, kind of in the same breath, it's kind of like he's just making the larger point. None of this happens outside of God's control. His purposes are clear. He is judging Israel, and he's spent a lot of time telling us that. And he will judge Assyria, and he will judge Babylon. And now we're going to go on and see some other people that he's going to judge. The prophecy came, this prophecy came in the year King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, all you Philistines, that the rod that struck you is broken. Now, who's the rod that has frequently struck the Philistines? It's Israel, right. So what he's saying is, as Israel is being conquered by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians, the Philistines might start to feel pretty good. And Isaiah's saying, not so quick. Not so quick. What's that? Not so quick. The rod that struck you is broken. From the root of that snake will spring up a viper. Its fruit will be a darting venomous serpent. The poorest of the poor will find pasture and the needy will lie down in safety. But your root I will destroy by famine. It will slay your survivors. Wail, you gate, howl, you city. Melt away, all you Philistines. A cloud of smoke comes from the north, and there is not a straggler in its ranks. What answer shall be given to the envoys of that nation? The Lord has established Zion, and in her his afflicted people will find refuge. So when Philistine is demolished by famine, apparently not by, not by uh, battle. And this one historically is a little bit harder for us to pinpoint. Doesn't mean it didn't happen, just means that famines aren't often a big historical moment. <laughs> so we don't know exactly about all this. Um, but his point is... When that happens, what will be the answer for the Philistines? This is the God appointed it. Yeah. They are. It's true. For warriors, it's an ignoble ending, right? It's not even like it's not even like a glorious ending, right? Yeah. It's true. There's some truth to that. I, no, go right ahead. Not specifically about Satan, it still just kind of takes you into like a bigger 
like idea too. I mean, I know like Satan isn't God's equal, but you know our battle isn't against like flesh and blood. For sure. Kind of the idea of like making it. This is really what it's like about. For sure. I think it's also the idea that Isaiah might be speaking about the second coming of Christ is also fitting because we, we do know he talks about the first coming. So the fact that he might just talk about the messianic times from both ends, it, it, it does seem to make sense. And the rabbis, again, they saw it that way to the point that this was one of their theological arguments. Isaiah seems to paint a suffering servant Messiah. He seems to paint a warrior Messiah. Which one is he going to be? And they had, they had camps. People in each camp were like, well, I think it's going to be this. Well, I think it's going to be that. Interesting thing is when Jesus came, both camps went, oh, it's not him. But that's a whole other thing. <laughs> a prophecy against Moab. All right. Uh, not because I want to dwell on this particular unpleasant thing, but because it's relevant to some of what he talks about. Does anybody remember where Moab comes from? Who their sort of founding father is? What? No, close. You're right, though. It's got a connection to the uh, forefathers. So. Nope. Nope. If you keep going, you'll eventually get the right Bible story. But let me just uh, help you out. So here's I. I wouldn't remember it either, except I study this all the time. So here's the reality. It's Lot. It's Lot's child. It's Lot's child by Lot and his daughter. So when they get out of Sodom and Gomorrah and they run to the caves, Lot's daughters say, oh my goodness. And they've been raised in this really, this, the, part of, the point of this story back in, in the story of Lot is to show us how depraved things were in Sodom and Gomorrah. And, the, and so Lot's daughters who've been raised in this culture of Sodom and Gomorrah, this is how they think. They end up in a cave. The two daughters look at each other and say, now there's no men alive for us to continue on to have children. Let's get dad drunk and sleep with him. That makes sense to them coming from Sodom and Gomorrah. So they do exactly that. And the child that is born is the founder of Moab. And so the race of the Moabites comes from that lineage. Okay? So that's Abraham's nephews. Um, and what's interesting is throughout the rest of the Old Testament, leading up to this point, the Moabites have a weird, conflicted relationship with the Israelites. On the one hand, which, which makes sense, again, given sort of the, where they come from, on the one hand, God says to the Israelites, for example, when they settle in the Promised Land, he says, go around the Moabites, they're your, they're your relatives. Don't, just like he says with Edom, don't attack them, leave them alone, because they actually come from the same lineage. The other thing is, you know who's a very prominent Moabite? Somebody who's actually a quarter Moabite? Well, David's a quarter Moabite because Ruth is full Moabite. So King David is actually a quarter Moabite. And so you have this. So that means the lineage of the Messiah comes from the Moabites. So you have this sort of uneasy relationship between Moabites and Israel. On the one hand, they come from this interesting origin. On the other hand, God says, treat them as relatives. And in fact, I'm going to bring the, the lineage of the Messiah through partial Moabites. And then on the third hand, and yes, this is some weird Canaanite God that has three hands. On the third hand, the Moabites are a constant thorn in the side of the Israelites. Because even though God tells them not to attack the Moabites, the Moabites are consistently doing things to attack them. 
and they do all sorts of things. It's the Moabite, it's the Moabitesses, the Moabite women that, that seduce and lead astray a whole bunch of people of the lineage of Israel, um, which mixes up, again, the whole inheritance in a pretty major way at one point. It's the Moabites that attack at one point when the Israelites are, 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 are down. Um, it's Moabites are involved in one of the moments when David is actually taken out of his kingship, which is ironic given he's actually part of their family. So it's really, there's just this relationship with the Moabites where God keeps saying, be nice to them. But they're not really nice to the Israelites. And there's just kind of this weird relationship. And now we have a prophecy against Moab. And you'll hear some of the things that he says in this. And in fact, one of the things you'll hear is that Isaiah speaks with a compassion about the Moabites that he did not speak about the Babylonians and the Assyrians. You'll hear in him, he'll say things about how sad he is about their destruction. Things he said about Israel, but that he didn't say about the Babylonians, the Assyrians, or the Philistines. And I think it's because he's aware of this connection, this relationship that they have. All right. So here we go. Uh, Let's see. A prophecy against Moab. Ar in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Kir in Moab is ruined, destroyed in a night. Diban goes up to its temple, to its high places to weep. Moab wails over Neba and Mediba. Now, here's another interesting thing. Every one of these cities that he just mentioned used to belong to Israel. These are all cities that were Israelite cities that apparently the Moabites took over at some point in all this. Every head is shaved and every beard cut off. In the streets, they wear sackcloth. On the roofs and in the public squares, they all wail, prostrate with weeping. Heshbon and Aleah cry out. Their voices are heard all the way to Jehaz. Therefore, the armed men of Moab cry out, and their hearts are faint. My heart cries out over Moab. Hear that? Makes me sad. My heart cries out over Moab. Her fugitives flee as far as Zor. Guess where Zor is? That is the mountain with the cave that Lot flees to where the founder of Moab is conceived. I don't think it's an accident he mentions that particular location. Okay. Her fugitive flees as far as Zoar, as far as Eglith Shelashayah. That's a fun one. They go up the hill to Luhith, weeping as they go. On the road to Horonaim, they lament their destruction. The waters of Nimrim are dried up and the grass is withered. The vegetation is gone and nothing green is left. So the wealth they have acquired and stored up, they carry away over the ravine of the poplars. Their outcry echoes along the border of Moab. Their wailing reaches as far as Eglim. Their lamentation as far as Bir Elim. The waters of Demon are full of blood. But I will bring still more upon Demon, a lion upon the fugitives of Moab and upon those who remain in the land. Send lambs as tribute to the ruler of the land from Selah across the desert to the Mount of Daughter Zion. It's like here in the middle of this prophecy, Isaiah gives them an exhortation. He speaks to Moab. And he says, once upon a time, because this is true, you gave tribute to Israel in the form of sacrifices to the God of Israel. Return to that. In other words, just like he told Israel, let's return to God. He's telling the Moabites the same thing. Let's come back to God. Like Let's back come. when they were with Lot? What do you mean? Well, like the Moabites, because, I mean, they wouldn't have... No, they have never been worshippers of Yahweh, but they were giving tribute to Israel within the reign of the kings that we've oh. been talking about at one point. And so he's saying return to that tribute as a way of honoring God, as a way of coming to the God of the Israelites, so that then maybe he'll spare you. Send lambs as tribute to the ruler of the land from Selah across the desert to, mount, to the Mount of Daughter Zion. 
Like fluttering birds pushed from the nest, so are the women of Moab at the fords of Arnon. Make up your mind, Moab says. Render a decision. Make your shadow at night at high, make your shadow like night at high noon. The point of this is when they're under distress and they're being attacked, no one will know what to, where to go. They'll just be like chicken with their head cut off, running around. And the leaders of Moab will say, make your shadows like night at high noon. Become invisible. Hide! <laughs> Quit being indecisive and hide, is what they're saying. And then he says this, I think, to Israel. He says, hide the fugitives. Do not betray the refugees. Let the Moabite fugitives stay with you. Be their shelter from the destroyer. So Isaiah is even doing kind of what God has done in the past. He's saying, treat them like family. When those refugees come to you, hide them. Help them hide. Protect them. Be their shelter from the destroyer. The oppressor will come to an end and the destruction will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it, one from the house of David, one who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. This seems pretty clear messianic prophecy to me. We have heard of Moab's pride, how great is her arrogance, of her conceit, her pride, and her insolence, but her boasts are empty. Therefore, the Moabites wail. They wail together for Moab. Lament and grieve for the raisin cakes of Kir Harasheth. They must have been really good if they're lamenting. That's what they lament about the loss of this town is the raisin cakes. The fields of Heshbon. It would be like lament the green chili of Hatch if Hatch was destroyed. <laughs> the, the fields of Heshbon wither, the vines of Sibma also. The rulers of the nations have trampled down the choicest vines, which once reached Jazer and spread toward the desert. Their shoots spread out and went as far as the sea, so I weep as Jezer weeps for the vines of Sibma, Heshbon, and Aleah, I drench you with tears. The shouts of joy over your ripened fruit and over your harvests have been stilled. Joy and gladness are taken away from the orchards. No one sings or shouts in the vineyards. No one treads out wine at the presses, for I have put an end to the shouting. My heart laments for Moab like a harp, my inmost being for Kir Hereseth. When Moab appears at her high place, she only wears herself out. When she goes to her shrine to pray, it is to no avail. They go seek help from their gods, and it's just pointless. This is the word the Lord has already spoken concerning Moab. Now, this is interesting. What we have here is we have a, a little break. So he says, this is the word the Lord has already spoken concerning Moab. I think what he means is he's actually already prophesied this, but he's writing it down now, and he's about to add an addendum. Okay, and this is what the addendum is. Uh, let's see. But now the Lord says, right? So he says, this is what God's already prophesied. But now the Lord says, within three years, as a servant bound by contract would count them, Moab's splendor and all her many people will be despised and her survivors will be very few and feeble. So it's like Isaiah has already prophesied against Moab, but now he's come back and said, guess what? We've got a timeline now. And by the way, that's a really interesting phrase. As a servant bound by contract would count them. What, what is unique about the way a servant bound by contract will count the years? Yes. They're going to be really precise because they want to be done on the day they're done. So he's saying within three years on the dot. Within is actually a little bit of a vague term itself, I suppose. But nonetheless, he's saying within three years. This is another one of those where we don't actually know. We, I mean, again... I assume this is accurate. That has to happen at least once. I think that's on every podcast. Um, we, um, <laughs> now we just need the meowing cat. <laughs> Can you just turn your hooks off? 
I really don't care. Um, uh, we, because we don't know when this historical event happened, and we don't know when Isaiah is speaking, we don't know when this, when this is. In other words, if we knew when Isaiah was speaking, we could figure out when the historical event might have happened. Or if we knew there was a clear historical event for Moab, we could go backwards and figure out when Isaiah was speaking. We don't know either, so they probably both happened right at the right time, but we just don't know historically when that right time is. There is, interestingly enough, though, around 715 B.C., there is, and this is the thing about Moab, they're not, frankly, that important to the world, but they are to God, right? So that's why, historically, there's not a lot about what happens to Moab. Um, but there is this moment where when, king, when Sargon is king of Assyria in this area, and he comes through and he starts to wipe out other nations, he goes through where Moab is. And although historically the king of Assyria doesn't think Moab's important enough to even mention, if he went through Moab, he probably went through Moab. And that would be around 715, which would very conceivably line up with within three years of when Isaiah made this prophecy. So, that, that makes sense. All right, that's Isaiah 13 through 16. That's so cheerful. Well, we're not going to stop there. Because as you all pointed out, I don't like to stop there. <laughs> in fact, we're gonna, now we go to Second Chronicles, and this is a beautiful moment in the world of, of the Judites, because this is Hezekiah. We've talked about how Hezekiah is a good thing, good king. We've heard him referred to as a good king. In fact, in verses 1 and 2 of the chapter, we're going to jump in on verse 3, because we've already read 1 and 2, but I'll remind you what it says. In verses 1 and 2, we're told that Hezekiah became king at 25, and he reigned 29 years. Now, we understand that what that means is he became sole king at 25. He actually probably was reigning with his father, but with limited power, right, uh, during the time. When he begins to do his sole reign, what we're told is that he did what was right, just as his father David had done. How many kings was it said of them, they did just what was right, but not just as their father David had done, right? They did good but not great. Hezekiah, it says of him, he did just like David. And as we read these next chapters, it's so encouraging to see what he does and how effective it is and how he, he absolutely ushers uh, Judah into a time of revival. Now, there's some things that help him along the way in this timing. One is Isaiah. Isaiah is out there preaching fire and brimstone and <laughs> telling people, shape up. But the other thing that's happening is northern kingdom's gone. They've just watched 10 twelfths, so to speak, of their tribes just get demolished. They've watched the stronger of the two divisions in many ways be destroyed by Assyria. And that's happening at least somewhere in this period of Hezekiah's reign, right? It's happening during Hezekiah's reign. And so that also is probably helping Hezekiah as he says, let's straighten up. People are thinking, maybe not a bad idea. Maybe not a bad idea. So, here we go. In the first month of the first year of his reign, again, letting you know he didn't waste time. Once Ahaz was dead, he immediately starts doing these things. He clearly was planning to do this. He just didn't have the power to do it, I don't think, until Ahaz actually had died. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. Just generally, do you guys remember how much has just been happening in the temple that's bad? They've been bringing in idols. They've been bringing in false altars. Remember that Ahaz took the altar out of the temple, moved it around to the other side, um, and, and took off parts of it, and then brought in other altars. It just, it's a mess. 
It's just not at all what it was supposed to be. Interesting point, it, when you read where it talks about he brings an altar out and moves it around, the, the, the way the temple is supposed to face and the doors of the temple and the altars of the temple are all very carefully prescribed. Even when it was the tabernacle and they were traveling, they were always supposed to put the doors facing to the east and they were always supposed to have the altar there. Well, what, what, what's interesting is when Ahaz actually moves the altar around, it's like he's turning his back on God. He literally puts it on the other side so that no longer is it facing east. And there's a reference that Hezekiah makes in here when he says, you turned your back on God. And maybe that's all he means, turned your back on God. But maybe he's actually, because he's talking about the temple, maybe he's actually referring to that. He's like, we sort of physically did this, and yeah, I know it was my dad, but I don't claim him as my dad. That's pretty much Hezekiah's take of most of this. All right. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites, assembled them in the square on the east side. So again, he's like right away, he's like, let's, let's, let's have this meeting in the presence of God. So he assembled them on the east side and said, listen to me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Our parents were unfaithful. And I think, I mean, he may just mean our ancestors, but it's interesting he says our parents, and it could literally be that the priests he's speaking to share something in common with him, and that's that they have parents who were not great about this. Our parents were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord of God and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. They also shut the doors of the portico and put out the lamps. The lamps, the lamps which are supposed to burn forever for always. Eh, just put them out. They did not burn incense or present any burnt offerings at the sanctuary to the God of Israel. He doesn't say they didn't present sacrifices or burnt offerings, period. They just didn't do it to the God of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem. He has made them an object of dread and horror and scorn, as you can see with your own eyes. This is why our fathers have fallen by the sword and why our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now, I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and serve him, to minister before him and to burn incense. So he calls the Levites and he gives them the challenge. He gives them the call. You are the people that God has called to restore the temple workings. Don't, don't be fearful. Don't back out. Don't be negligent. This is a big calling. Then these Levites set to work from the Kohathites, Mahath, son of Amasai, and Joel, son of Azariah, from the Merorites, Kish, son of Abdi, and Azariah, son of Jehalel, from the Gershonites, Joash, son of Zimah, and Eden, son of Joah, from the descendants of Elazaph and Shimri and Jael, from the descendants of Asaph, Zechariah, and Mataniah, from the descendants of Haman, Jehiel, and Shemai, from the descendants of Juduth and Shemaiah, and Uziel. They mention all these names, and it's interesting as they do, it already begins to feel like it used to feel. Remember that the Levites were broken into different groups, the Maronites, the Mahathites, the Korites. And then, I don't know if you noticed, but when he begins to talk about the descendants of, he begins to mention the worship leaders, Asaph and Haman, people who wrote Psalms, people who were part of leading the worship. He begins to mention that these are the descendants. Things are getting put back into place. People who've had no purpose for years because they aren't doing what God called them to do are now being put back into purpose. And that's where he starts. The other thing that's fascinating about all this is Hezekiah as king does not make the mistake that some other kings have made of saying, I'm gonna go clean out the temple. I'm gonna go teach people how to worship. I'm gonna go, no, he understands. Again, God has assigned certain things to certain people. And God, remember, 
that kings get in trouble when they try to go do things in the temple that they're not supposed to do. So he needs these other Levites to do their job. But he knows it. He's smart enough to know it. The law has not been lost. That's what we learned from, from Hezekiah. Whether it's through Isaiah or whether it's through written documents or, or what, the law has not been lost because Hezekiah is very clear on it. Now, did he have to search this out? Has he been spending years researching it while waiting for his dad to die? I suspect he has been. But it's still there. And when he starts talking, you see that he knows the laws of God. And he's excited about re-implementing them. That's right. That's right. That's really good. Because it would be easy to just see that the, the, the what's glorious calling of the Levites and the priests and the worship leaders has just become nothing, right? It's become so corrupted. And now here Hezekiah is saying, consecrate yourself, consecrate the temple. Your job is again glorious and important. Meredith, you were going to say something? Well, I was going to say, well, it's also cool that like they know like they're getting like the Kohathites and the Yeah. yeah. And that's right it's also cool that this is possible that with all the corruption and things that have happened that god has still again not only preserved the lineage of the king the kingdom right because hezekiah is a descendant of david but he's also preserved the lineage of the levites that they can actually say you're a korahite you're a merite which is cool because it, it's been pretty messed up <laughs> right we know that for a period of time in the kings you had priests who weren't levites it told us so the fact that they can even find those people is pretty cool. That that's still, God has preserved that ability to do that. When they had assembled their fellow Levites and consecrated themselves, they went in to purify the temple of the Lord as the king had ordered, following the word of the Lord. The priests went into the sanctuary of the Lord to purify it. They brought out to the courtyard of the Lord's temple anything, I'm sorry, everything unclean that they found in the temple of the Lord. The Levites took it and carried it out to the Kidron Valley. They began the consecration on the first day of the month, and by the eighth day of the month, they reached the portico of the Lord. And for eight more days, they consecrated the temple of the Lord itself, finishing on the 16th day of the first month. It took 16 days just to remove the rubble and cleanse the temple. And I don't think they were taking long breaks. I really don't. I think this was dawn to dusk work, don't you? And they were cleaning out the temple, and it took them 16 days. That's how bad it was. And that's just cleaning things out. They haven't even begun to repair things yet. Then they went to King Hezekiah and reported, We have purified the entire temple of the Lord, the altar of the burnt offering with all its utensils, and the table for setting out the consecrated bread with all its articles. We have prepared and consecrated all the articles that King Ahaz removed in his unfaithfulness while he was king. They are now in front of the Lord's altar. Early the next morning, King Hezekiah gathered the city officials together and went up to the temple of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven male lambs, and seven male goats as a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. The king commanded the priests, the descendants of Aaron, to offer these on the altar of the Lord. Again, King Hezekiah does not make these sacrifices. Would God have forgiven him if he did? Very possibly because his heart's in the right place, but it shows he knows the law. He does not do it. He's like, God doesn't like the kings to do this. He wants the priests to do this. So he finds people who are descendants of Aaron. Not as Levites, but again, where has this lineage been preserved? 
And he commands them, you have to do these sacrifices. I can't do it. Joe Schmo can't do it. You can do it. And he commands them to. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priest took the blood and splashed it against the altar. You can compare this with the law, by the way, and you'll find the correlation that everything they do here, this is not just them making stuff up. They are doing what God commanded them to do. That's cool, like, because it reminds me of, like, when David brought the ark in, like, the second time. Right, and they did it the right way. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests took the blood and splashed it against the altar. Next, they slaughtered the rams and splashed their blood against the altar. Then they slaughtered the lambs and splashed their blood against the altar. The goats for the sin offering were brought before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. The priests then slaughtered the goats and presented the blood on the altar for a sin offering to atone for all Israel. This is Yom Kippur. This is the atonement for the entire nation. The implication is this has not been done for decades, possibly a century or more. The priests then slaughtered the goats and presented their blood on the altar for a sin offering to atone for all Israel because the king had ordered the burnt offering and the sin offering for all Israel. He stationed the Levites in the temple of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres in the way prescribed by David and Gad the king's seer and Nathan the prophet. Remember Nathan the prophet? Again, he's reaching way back. He's like, what, what was, well, how did they prescribe this should all happen? David prescribed what should happen in the temple before the temple was built, and that's what Hezekiah is going back to. This was commanded by the Lord through his prophets. So the Levites stood ready with David's instruments and the priests with their trumpets. And Hezekiah gave the order to sacrifice the burnt offering on the altar. You see how everybody's in the right place. Hezekiah's giving the orders. The musicians are ready to play. The priests are ready to do what they're supposed to. Everybody is in their place. And it's been so long since this has happened. As the offering began, singing to the Lord began also, accompanied by trumpets and the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly bowed in worship while the musicians played and the trumpets sounded. And all this continued until the sacrifice of the burnt offering was completed. When the offerings were finished, the king and everyone present with him knelt down and worshipped. King Hezekiah and his officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. The Psalms, the very Psalms that we were going through, they are now reciting and singing. This is a, a beautiful, beautiful moment. So they sang praise with gladness and bowed down and worshiped. Then Hezekiah said, you have now dedicated yourselves to the Lord. Come and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the temple of the Lord. So we've done the sin offerings. We've done the consecrations. We've done the cleansing offerings. Now let's give some thank offerings. Let's give some praise offerings. Let's give some fellowship offerings. So the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. And all whose hearts were willing brought burnt offerings. And the number of burnt offerings the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 male lambs all of them for burnt offerings to the Lord. The animals consecrated as sacrifices amounted to 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep and goats. And this is only those who are willing. This is how it should look. The priests, however, were too few to skin all the burnt offerings. We've had this discussion before. There's a lot of work involved here. It's very messy work too, by the way. But at this moment, there's such an outpouring, right? Because normally you wouldn't be doing all this at once. There's such an outpouring because it's been so not a thing that it's too much for the priests. The priests were too few to skin all the burnt offerings, so their relatives, the Levites, helped them until the task was finished and until, all, and until other priests had been consecrated. For the Levites had been conscientious in consecrating themselves, sorry, the Levites had been more conscientious in consecrating themselves than the priests had been. There's an interesting theme that we see, and we see this through Hezekiah's revival here, and I really like it because I think it is such a good balanced picture of what it looks like to be faithful, what it looks like to be responding by faith. And it's this. This is a tweak, right? 
We talked about how Hezekiah is being so careful to follow the law, but at this moment, he actually doesn't follow the letter of the law because only the priest should be doing this. So he, but they just can't. They literally can't. And so Hezekiah has a choice. He has three choices, really. One choice is he can, he can just look at this and say, wow, what God has called us to do is impossible to do, and he can give up the whole thing. He can just decide God is unreasonable and stop trying to obey God and say, well, we can't. Second choice is he can say, well, it's more important to follow what God told us to do than it is to actually honor God. So we're just going to let these animals that can't be sacrificed just not be sacrificed, I guess. And the third choice is what he does, which is to say, my heart is to do the will of God. And the only way I can see to do the will of God is to get Levites. Again, it's not just anybody. He still gets the Levites, people who are consecrated. In fact, it tells us that they were even more, whatever this means, they were better consecrated than the priests. They had been more conscientious about it. They were more careful about it. So they're not, they're not unholy. They're not unprepared. And he says, Let's, we have them. Let's have them help the priests. Now, by the way, we've actually speculated that even under the law, this might have been God's intent all along. Because he has all these Levites who are helping out and only a few priests. So maybe this is the way it was supposed to happen anyway, but it's not clearly spelled out in the law. So I get the sense Hezekiah looks at it and he's like, it's not spelled out in the law. But here's the difference. God sometimes gets really mad at people when they tweak the law in ways that we might think look okay. But here's the difference. And you, you see this in people all the time. And you can see it in kids and you see it in yourself. There's a big difference. When you're told to do something and you're saying, is this possible to do? There's a big difference between looking for a loophole because you're not really inclined to follow the law and looking for a way to do the will of God even when you have to not do exactly what the law said to do. There's a difference in the heart, right? So you can tell this. Sometimes you tell somebody to do something and they say, well, what about if this happens and what about if that happens and what about if the other happens? And you can tell right away they're just looking for excuses to not follow God. But then you have other people when you tell them to do something and they really try to do it and they run into an issue and they say, oops, but how, is, how can I do this with what you said? And you can tell they're just looking for a way to follow the law of God. And that's where Hezekiah's heart is. He's like, I really, the goal, as near as I understand it, what God wants us to do is honor him with these thanksgiving sacrifices and offerings and I don't want any of these people to not be able to do that. And I also see that I shouldn't do it, so I'm not gonna jump in and do it. That seems pretty clear. And I also see that it needs to be people who are consecrated, but we've got a whole bunch of consecrated people over here who can do this. And so there's wisdom. There's wisdom in this. And there's faith in wisdom. In that it's about fear of the Lord and not just sort of the, the rigors of a law you don't understand. He not only knows the law, he really understands the law. That's what we see in Hezekiah. And he understands it because his desire is to do the will of God. And by faith, he believes that this is what God wants done. And so there's no condemnation for him in doing this. And we're going to see this come up a couple of other times. There's wisdom in faith and not so much in just sort of rote following systems. But there is wisdom in obedience, which comes from faith and understanding what God is calling from you. There were burnt offerings in abundance together with the fat of the fellowship offerings and the drink offerings that accompanied the burnt offerings. So the service of the temple of the Lord was reestablished. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced at what God had brought about for his people because it was done so quickly. And if you think about it, this is quick. It took 16 days to clean the temple, but he hasn't wasted any time. He's just like jumped right in and people are just, they're having a good time. And let us not forget when it starts talking about the fellowship offerings and the drink offerings, this is where the party comes in. 
The fellowship offerings and drink offerings were to be shared by the whole assembly. This is the, this is the potluck, not to, this is a sanctified potluck. It's a good potluck. Yeah, this is a pot blessing. We don't believe in luck. No, this is a... This is a... <laughs> That's what I believe in pot. Uh, no, this is, a, uh, this, is a, this is a barbecue. This is a, this is a great celebration. People are rejoicing. They're happy. And this is the other thing about when a leader applies the wisdom to the law of God. The law doesn't become a burden. The law becomes a great celebration. All these people now see the law differently. Under Ahaz, they thought the law was this weird duty, obligation, and restriction that they barely followed, if at all. Under Hezekiah, it's a joy. It's a celebration. It's a party. That's awesome. Well, and it's so cool, too, that, like, they probably don't have as much right now, and then they're under kind of the threat of, like, Assyria, and to be able to just, like, Throw everything totally. into this. Like, right totally. Now. Absolutely. Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah, and he also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. So it's going to tell us explicitly in a second, this has never been done, ever. How weird is that? This was a standing order from the day they settled in the land, but from the day they settled in the land, this has never been done. <laughs> Not under David, not under Solomon, not under Joshua. Not, it says, in the mass way it's being done now. So they celebrated Passover. But there's something about the way Hezekiah is reaching out even to the northern kingdom, which is not really there, right? He's, he's reaching out to the survivors. He's reaching out to people who haven't been taken. And he's inviting them. And Ephraim, Manasseh, even on the other side, the Transjordan people, he's inviting them to come. He's making a deliberate effort to reunite all of Israel. And for the first time since Jeroboam and Rehoboam, he actually does it. Now, granted, there, there ain't a lot of the northern kingdom left anymore. But this is a moment of reunification that no amount of force has ever accomplished. And so this is what he does. He wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Remember, this was the problem. Right at the beginning, Jeroboam was like, I don't want people to go to Jerusalem. And he destroyed the unity by not making them go. And Hezekiah's like, come on, guys. Yes, Jeff? So saying inviting him to the temple, that could not have happened during David's time because there was no temple. True, you are correct. Good point. Invite, to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. The king and his officials and the whole assembly in Jerusalem decided to celebrate at the Passover in the second month. They had not been able to celebrate it at the regular time because not enough priests had consecrated themselves and the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. Again, his desire is to do the will of God. He says, we really should be celebrating Passover. I started in the first month and it took us 16 days to clean the temple and then we had to do all this consecration. There's no way we could do the Passover in the first month. I think God would rather we do it in the second month and sort of skew that then wait another year. Again, wisdom. Because his desire is to do the will of God, not to look for a loophole to get out of it. They had not been able to celebrate it at the regular time because not enough people had consecrated themselves and the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. The plan seemed right both to the king and to the whole assembly. But even here, as he's going to skirt it a little bit, it's something that there's unanimous agreement on, right? He's like, what do you guys think? I think we should have Passover. I don't want to wait a year to have Passover. It's a great moment. Let's do it now. I think God would rather we do it now. Because what, what is the purpose of Passover? Remembrance. To remember what? God's provision. 
God's provision, that God brought them out of Egypt, that God saved them when they were slaves. What's happened in the northern kingdom? They're enslaved. This would be a great time to do Passover. <laughs> Let's remember who we are, where we come from, who rescued us. Let's remember who's taken care of us as a vineyard. So they decided to send a proclamation throughout Israel from Beersheba to Dan. And again, we've talked about this before. Beersheba to Dan, this seems to be an idiom that just means across the entire land. Coast okay. to coast. Coast to coast, exactly. From Beersheba to Dan, calling the people to come to Jerusalem and to celebrate Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. And here's what it says. It had not been celebrated in large numbers according to what was written. Maybe it had been celebrated, but not according to what was written. Maybe it had been celebrated in small numbers, but it's never been celebrated in large numbers according to what was written. It was supposed to be celebrated by all of Israel every year according to what was written. <laughs> this is hundreds of years down the line. It's never happened. At the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king and from his officials, which read, People of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you who that he may return to you who are left, who have escaped from the hands of the kings of Assyria, right? They're just basically, why does he send couriers out? Because they're hiding in the caves and the rocks and the clefts and the, you know, wherever they can kind of be. And so he's actually hunting them down and saying, You're out there by yourself, guess what? You're not by yourself. And frankly, if your home's been taken and you're invited to Jerusalem, why not? Do not be like your parents and your fellow Israelites who are unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their ancestors, so that he made them an object of horror, as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your ancestors were. Submit to the Lord. Come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. This was not supposed to ever fade. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, then your fellow Israelites and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will return to this land. They say, well, what about those who have been taken? You want them back? It's God who's in charge of that. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. And the couriers went from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but... People scorned and ridiculed them. This is how stiff-necked Israel is. Even in the dregs, in the midst of their refugee status, they're like, nope, that's just stupid. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. So a lot of scorn and ridicule, but there are some who return. And it makes you think of the... The, the prophecies of Hosea and Amos and Isaiah who all mention that there will be this remnant and when they return to God, they will find God's favor. And these are those people. And Hezekiah is there to call them back to that. Also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind. So throughout the northern kingdom, it's kind of hit and miss. In Judah, it's, it's all party. Uh, to give them unity of mind, carry out what the king and his officials had ordered following the word of the Lord. A very large crowd of people assembled in Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of unleavened bread in the second month. They removed the altars in Jerusalem and cleared away the incense altars and threw them into the Kidron Valley. So this is kind of a spontaneous thing. He had them clear out the temple, but remember there were all these other altars in the high places. This is part of what it says other people didn't do, that they were good, but not like their father David, and they didn't remove the altars from the high places. And a lot of these are altars to the right God, just in the wrong place. And now that he's calling people back to the right place because it brings the unity to the people come together, they, they spontaneously, it almost appears, start tearing down all the temples around Jerusalem and 
taking them to Kidron Valley, which is where all the other bad stuff went. Well, and now they have a place to worship too. Exactly, exactly. They slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. The point is they did everything in the second month they would have done in the first month. They, they followed the pattern perfectly. They just don't wait a year to do it. The priests and Levites were ashamed and consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings to the temple of the Lord. I like this. They're commanded to do it. They do it. There's some movement. But now it's almost like they're, they're actually now recognizing what Hezekiah's been saying. As people come, they're like, you mean we could have been leading this all this time? We just thought people didn't want it. We thought people didn't care. So we didn't care. And now they're like, oh my gosh, we missed our calling. So they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings to the temple of the Lord. Then they took up their regular positions as prescribed in the law of Moses, the man of God. The priest splashed against the altar of the blood, handed in by the Levites. Since many in the crowd had not consecrated themselves, the Levites had to kill the Passover lambs for all of those who were not ceremonial clean and could not consecrate their lambs to the Lord. You've got people coming who are like, we don't know the law, and we don't have any way to accomplish the law where we are. So the priests have to do it for them, mediate for them, be a stand-in for them. Although most of the many people who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Ishkar, and Zebulun had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord who is good pardon everyone who set their heart on seeking God. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, even if they are not clean, according to the rules of the sanctuary. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. See, Hezekiah gets it. He says, God, I know you're good and these people are not following the law, but you know what a mess it is down here. And it seems to me like their heart, they are seeking you. Please do not punish them for this. And it says he healed the people, which can be read one of two ways. Either there was an initial punishment and then he healed them. Or I think more accurately, it's just talking about a sort of deeper healing. He began to redeem them. He accepted their eating of the Passover in the way he would have had they been clean. He stood in for them as the priest did. He mediated for them. The Israelites who were present in Jerusalem celebrated the festival of unleavened bread for seven days with great rejoicing. This is what's supposed to happen. While the Levites and priests praised the Lord every day with resounding instruments dedicated to the Lord. Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good understanding of the service of the Lord. I love this. What a great leader. He challenged them, he commands them, and now when they're doing it, he's like, you're doing such a good job. Yes? So, I'm jumping ahead, but there's somebody that comes to Jesus and has to be healed and says your sins are forgiven. Sure. So, I mean, that would be another... I, example of healing being yeah. akin to redemption in many ways. Sure. For the seven days they ate their assigned portion and offered fellowship offerings and praised the Lord, the God of their ancestors. And get this, the whole assembly then agreed to celebrate the festival seven more days. So for another seven days, they celebrated joyfully, not because they felt obligated, not because they thought God would strike them down if they didn't, but because they went, wow, we've been missing out. We haven't done this for years and years and years. We could probably stand to do it again. I don't think they did all of the Passover again, but I think they just continued the fellowship offerings and the praise and the worship. And they did this for another seven days. This is literally like a church service that, that does its hour. And then everybody unanimously is like, man, we are having such a good time. Let's keep going. I've tried that as a pastor. Usually people don't agree with me. <laughs> Hezekiah, king of Judah, provided a thousand bulls and 7,000 sheep and goats for the assembly. And the officials provided them with a thousand bulls and 10,000 sheep and goats. These are poor people. Most of them can't provide these things. Here's another example of Hezekiah's leadership. He's like, you know what? I don't know how this is, but all of these kings that have been corrupt, somehow we still have lots of stuff. 
Let's use it for you guys who don't. Well, Let's provide this. It's sounding like the numbers that David. Yeah. Yeah. And they need more because they're spending another seven days together in this big barbecue, right? So they're like, we want to keep going. And this guy's like, we're going to need more food. Yeah. Right, right. It's like everything is, is getting back to God's plan at the moment. It's a really, really beautiful moment. Okay. A great number of priests consecrated themselves. The entire assembly of Judah rejoiced, along with the priests and the Levites and all who had assembled from Israel. So those who do make the trip, those who come, they're like, I'm so glad I came. This is awesome. Including the foreigners who had come from Israel and also those who resided in Judah. So apparently along the way, there are converts that are now coming with them. There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Yeah. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them, for their prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. What just an incredible, incredible moment. Let's keep going just a little bit more. When all this had ended, the Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. So now they've done all the temples, and the altars, and the high places. Now they've just finished having the revival, and they're like, wait, there's still things that aren't right. Let's just get rid of it all. They destroyed the high places and the altars throughout Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh. They don't even just stop in the area of Judah. They go back Transjordan. I think the implication is they go back to northern Israel where they can. They're cleansing the entire area. After they had destroyed all of them, the Israelites returned to their own towns and to their own property, such as it is. Hezekiah assigned the priests and the Levites to divisions, each of them according to their duties as priests or Levites, to offer burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, to minister, to give thanks, sing praises at the gates of the Lord's dwelling. So it's not like this was a one-time thing. He's going to now, he's trying to reinstitute the proper functioning of the temple on a regular basis. This was the beginning. This wasn't just a one-time shot. The king contributed from his own possessions for the morning and evening burnt offerings and for the burnt offerings on the Sabbaths at the new moons and at the appointed festivals as written in the law of the Lord. Again, I know that people don't have what's necessary for all this. I will contribute. I will give it. What do I need a thousand bowls for? Uh, one reason that, why do you think, by the way, that Ahaz needed a thousand bowls? Because he was also sacrificing to other gods. So part of the irony is all these things that were being set aside for the other gods. Hezekiah's like, they don't need to go to the other gods. We'll just use them for ours. He ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and Levites so they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. Here's another thing that appears to have fallen out of practice. They were supposed to do a temple tax, or what we might think of as a tithe. And the purpose of it was so that the priests and Levites, because this is a full-time job, what they're doing, right? You see that? <laughs> the priests and Levites have full-time positions now. So first... He puts them back in their positions. He doesn't ask for you know, people to give their tithe before anything is being done. He puts them in their positions. He contributes from his own stock, which means he's also providing for them. But then he says, hey, now let's reinstitute what the people are supposed to do. But he starts with the leaders, which is something Isaiah and Hosea and Amos were all saying too. Well, it's kind of cool too, because I don't know that the, the, um, they would get to partake of the sacrifices to um, like the other gods. And so that's kind of a... Cool yeah, I don't know if they did or not. As soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain, new wine, olive oil, and honey, and all that the fields produced. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything. 
The people of Israel and Judah who lived in the towns of Judah also brought a tithe of their herds and flocks and a tithe of the holy things dedicated to the Lord their God. And they piled them in heaps. They began doing this in the third month and finished in the seventh month. So it took 16 days to clean out the temple, but it takes, you know, like, what is that, four months, five months just to begin to bring in the tithes that they haven't been bringing in. (laughs) And when Hezekiah and his officials came and saw the heaps, I love this too, they literally are just piling them like in the courtyard because they don't know what to do with them. Uh, when the Hezekiah and his officials came and saw the heaps, they praised the Lord and blessed the people of Israel. Hezekiah asked the priests and the Levites about the heaps. He's like, what, what are we doing with this? And Azariah, the chief priest from the family of Zadok, answered, since the people began to bring their contributions to the temple of the Lord, we've had enough to eat and plenty to spare because the Lord has blessed his people and this great amount is left over. So Hezekiah's like, why is this all just sitting here? And the priest is like, we've already got everything provided for which has not happened for a long time. But we're all provided for, and this is just, this is like, we can't even eat this. It's too much. What are, we, what are we supposed to do with it? Hezekiah gave orders to prepare storerooms in the temple of the Lord, and this was done. By the way, there were already storerooms in the temple of the Lord. So it sounds to me like what this means is that they've either been destroyed, and when they were preparing the temple, they didn't worry about that, which makes sense to me. They, they left that for lower priority. They took care of all the other stuff. Well, now, though, they realize, oh, this is why there are storerooms. <laughs> let's, let's put these storerooms back up, clean them out, kind of go on where we're going. And this was done. Then they faithfully brought in the contributions, tithes, and dedicated gifts. Conaniah Levite was the overseer in charge of these things, and his brother Shemai was next in rank. Jehiel, Azahiah, Nahath, Ashel, Jeremoth, Jozebad, Elil, Ismachiah, Mahath, and Benaniah were assistants of Conaniah and Shemaiah, his, his brother. This is how many people it takes to oversee the tithes. They have a team of accountants. All these served by appointment of King Hezekiah and Azariah, the official in charge of the temple of God. Kor, son of Imma, the Levite, keeper of the east gate, was in charge of the free will offerings given to God, distributing the contributions made to the Lord and also the conjugated gifts, consecrated gifts. By the way, the implication and what most people understand about free will offerings being distributed is that a lot of times this means being distributed back to the people who need them. So we're seeing that people are bringing their tithe and it's overflowing back to the poorest actually need some of this. Eden, Maniah, Jeshua, Shemaiah, Amariah, and Shechaniah assisted him faithfully in the towns of the priests. And I apparently didn't copy everything. Can I borrow someone's Bible? Because I'm pretty sure that's not the end of that chapter, is it? Is it close? Oh, thank you. Uh, no, well, okay, uh, <laughs> yes, the priests, distributing to their fellow priests according to their divisions, old and young alike. In addition, they distributed to the males, three years old or more, whose names are in the genealogical records, all who had entered the temple of the Lord to perform the daily duties of their various tasks according to their responsibilities and their divisions. And they distributed to the priests enrolled by their families in the genealogical records, and likewise to the Levites, 20 years old or more, according to their responsibilities and their divisions. And they included all the little ones, the wives and the sons and the daughters of the whole community listed in these genealogical records, for they were faithful in consecrating themselves. As for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who lived on the farmlands around their towns or in any other towns, men were designated by name to distribute portions to every male among them and to all who were recorded in genealogies of the Levites. This is all stuff that's provided for in the law. None of this is new. This is all what, what Hezekiah sees they're supposed to have been doing. And you can see how there's this, there's this sort of 
unhealthy symbiotic feeding as the Levites didn't do what they were supposed to do. They also weren't provided for. And as they weren't provided for, there was probably less incentive for them to do what they were supposed to do, right? So they went after other ways to provide for themselves. And they became corrupt and they became cheaters. And they became, you know, if, if the king said, build me an altar to another God and the king offered to pay them for it, they probably just did it. So this, this, this relationship, this unhealthy cycle has been turned on its head now. Now the people, the, the Levites consecrated themselves, then the people brought in more than was needed and now the, the Levites and the priests all over, no matter where they are, are doing their duties and so now there's even more to bring to them even as they live in other towns. This is what it was supposed to look like all along. And Jeroboam cut this all off at, at the knees by not letting people go back to Jerusalem. Which is why Jeroboam gets so much credit for messing everything up. <laughs> this is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah, doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. I, I really like that. I think that fits what we've been talking about. A man who has wisdom to see the law and understand what it means to be good and faithful in it and not just sort of following some things. You know, this is, Hezekiah is not somebody God would ever say to him, I'm sick of your sacrifices. Do you really think I need them? He would say to Hezekiah, I love your sacrifices because they come from a heart of faithfulness and, and desire to do my will. And you are able to understand when you have to tweak an impossible task. I did not desire to give you impossible tasks. So if the culture has mandated that and you tweak in a way which obeys my, my heart, then that thrills my heart, says God. In everything that he undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly. That's, that's the tribute. And that's all the tribute you need for Hezekiah. He sought his God and worked wholeheartedly. What, what could go wrong if our leaders would do that? <laughs> right? Sought his God and worked wholeheartedly. And so he prospered. What happens from here is that we, it becomes throwback, but it's not really, because one of the things that happens is we're told that Hezekiah actually collects and compiles some of the Proverbs of Solomon. Are they Proverbs that were lost? Are they Proverbs that just people stopped reading? Who knows, but he compiles them. And so in the Chronological Bible, it, we don't know which ones, well, we do know some of them, because it actually says at the beginning of Proverbs 25, these are more Proverbs of Solomon compiled by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So we see that they compiled them so it saves them for this moment. It also saves a couple of Proverbs that we don't know what the dating is, just in case they belong here too, um, that aren't by Solomon. So we're going to come back to a few Proverbs, uh, about five or six chapters of Proverbs. And then we come to, I know it was all of your favorite moment, uh, we come to a bunch of Psalms. Um, but I'm hoping just when we read them, Think of them in the context of Hezekiah. How exciting it would have been to them to have these songs that had been written by David and Asaph and Haman and all these people that they're like, oh, we are in touch with that, that heritage, that good heritage. We are remembering who we are. And that's the context of these songs because it says that Hezekiah grabbed some of the psalms of David that he had found. I just He must have been a bit of a research guy too, right? An archivist. He must have just been finding all these things, the law and the Psalms and the Proverbs. And he's like, yes, 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 let's use it all. And so we'll get to, we'll do the Proverbs and we'll come to some more Psalms where that's the point. These are Psalms that he commanded 
his people to use. And there's some speculation that some of these psalms are even written in the time of Hezekiah, That's, which makes sense. Some of these are written by the, the people that he set up to, to lead in worship. So, um, doesn't he write one? He does not. King Lemuel does. And we don't know who King Lemuel is, which is why the Chronological Bible puts it here. Because we're like, we don't know who this king is. Maybe he's Hezekiah. Maybe he's a friend of Hezekiah. We don't know. <laughs> so we'll just put it here. Um, also because it's 30 and 31 are both written by other kings and since they're the last two Proverbs we might as well put them here after these 25 through 29 that are here it is interesting that in the Proverbs the way it's organized for us today all, all up through 24 is all contemporary with Solomon for sure and then you have 25 through 29 which is these things that it says were compiled by Hezekiah written by Solomon but compiled by Hezekiah and then the two after that are written by other people so the way they're organized today may in fact make sense chronologically that that's kind of how those proverbs would have come about um, so again I know that we, there's so many psalms we, I, I saw some of your eyes glazing over a little bit some of you are not as fond of poetry as I am um, that's okay. Um, and the Proverbs too, I know we spent a lot of time on them, but we'll, and we may not dig into them as deep as we did since we've already done a lot of that, but uh, I just encourage you to remember them in the context of Hezekiah. And I think they'll be encouraging because here's these Proverbs of Solomon, which have kind of been lost, right? People haven't been living according to Solomon. They haven't been thinking about the path of life and the path of death. They've just been going wholeheartedly down the path of death. <laughs> And so here's Hezekiah. Hey, look at this, guys. Here's some interesting thoughts. And they're all like, wow, this is good stuff. And then they're worshiping and they're like, well, what does worship look like in the world of, of the true God? You know, we, we're familiar with the cutting yourself and the, and the weird gross sex rites and all these other things, all these other, but what does it look like to worship our God? And Hezekiah's like, I got a songbook for you. Check this out. So that's where we are. That's where we are. That's where we'll go next week. All right? And the whole point about Hezekiah necessarily, but he was constantly seeking. That is correct. He was constantly seeking. That is correct. And I really, yeah, seeking God and working wholeheartedly. And you do get the sense that his whole reign is like revelation upon revelation for him. He's like, oh, we were supposed to be doing this Passover. Let's do that. And then he's like, oh, look at these Proverbs that Solomon wrote. This is really cool, you know? And then he's like, wait, David wrote music? Well, I knew he did, but here's one right here, you know? It's just, it is kind of this discovery and as he's discovering it, he's leading the entire nation, such as it is now. And they were seeking it. And they were following him right along in that discovery. And so it's, it's a great moment. And you can argue it's part of the reason that there's another hundred years before Judah itself is taken over. I mean, that's a pretty good time after Israel's gone. You'd think Judah wouldn't have stood a chance in the time of Assyria, but they do. They survived the entire Assyrian Empire, which is weird. Huh. <laughs> it's not till Babylon that they actually fall. So, again, you can argue Hezekiah has a lot to do with that. And he bought him not just the 20 years he reigned, but in some ways nobody's as good as him after. Others are good, but not as good as him. So, in some ways, he kind of bought him another 100 years. <laughs> yes? Um, yeah. Oh. Yeah, in fact, in the law, and we talked about this when we went through it a little bit, in the law, it talks about some of the cleaning prescriptions. Which, the Holy of Holies. Well, the Holy of Holies only did one sacrifice a year. 
most of the sacrifices were done outside of the Holy of Holies. So it wouldn't have been as bad inside the Holy of Holies. But yeah, there's all sorts of prescriptions and, and the, the incense and the... Is it, is it in the Bible? It is. It is, yep. And, and even the incense and things like that, I think you're correct. A lot of that is not just sort of interesting side notes. A lot of it is because you're absolutely right. This was a messy business. Yeah. We talked a lot about that when we were going through it because Jeff was fond of bringing that up. <laughs> and figuring out exactly how much of everything was. It is a dry climate, so But yeah, you're absolutely right. And and it's and it's relevant. And it it really does explain why they need so many temple helpers. Because you got the priests, but then you do have all the Levites. And that's what you gather, is that a lot of them that's it was not again, it was a glorious position. But was it really? You know, I mean, how, you know, the Levites are doing a lot of the cleanup. That's what they're doing. And, um, and, and not to mention, someone's got to be also cleaning the, the priestly robes. Right? They had very specific attire they were wearing. And uh, that, there's no way that wasn't getting blood splatter. You think so. grass stains are hard? Yeah. <laughs> so there had, to be, there had to be lots of things going on with that too. Yeah, for sure. Um, what's that? It's a ton of work. And when we do get to the book of Hebrews, remember this, because the author of Hebrews makes no bones about the fact that this was a system which was not easy for anybody. And he says that. He says, what we have is far better. And one of the reasons he says is because this was messy work. This was not great for anybody, let's be honest. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was tough. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.